Here we are, 2020, guys. It's coming up. This is the sixth time we have started a year together, uh, uh, our family and, and, and many of you. I love New Year's, and the thing that I love about New Year's is arbitrary as it is, because it's super arbitrary. <laughs> I love that everyone stops and takes account for a minute. That everyone looks back and everyone looks forward and everyone just slows down for a moment and, and people begin to be self-reflective. I love that people make goals. I love that the gyms get full. I love that we stop for a moment and we ask ourselves probably the most important question coming up. And that's this. How can we have a better year? Aren't we asking that question? At some point, aren't we asking that question? How can this year be better? How can this year be different? Because I assume that even if your 2019 was like the best year of your life, I could probably convince you to want 2020 to be better, right? I mean, how many of you have ever said, I hope this next year is worse than the year before? No one ever says that, right? We all are hoping that whatever, whatever is behind us, whatever is in front of us, is a little bit better. We're hoping for that. And we know that we actually can have a hand in that, too. We can kind of make a difference. We can, we can do things that will help that year be better, and we can do things that will make that year maybe a little bit worse. And so we begin to ask questions about what we did last year, maybe that didn't go so well, our, our failures. We have, to, we have to look at that year honestly, Sometimes you need a reflection that stares back at you to tell you the truth. This is why I don't look in the mirror when I get out of the shower, right? I don't need that kind of feedback. We just... Isn't that the way it is, though? We, we, we have to confront those parts of ourselves that, that we like the least if we're going to change them in such a way as to make it better later on. And so that's very hard. Uh, all joking aside, though, when we, when we look at the mirror, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we often see that, don't we? We see the wrinkles. We see the gray. We see the push-ups neglected. We see what could have been but never was. We look in the mirror, and oftentimes we see guilt and shame and judgment one of the things that uh, struck me, that, or one, I should say one of the things that is, my, is one of my favorite things about being a dad, one of my favorite things to do, and, and it's, it's a goofy, silly thing. Maybe, maybe I'm not alone in doing this either, but I loved uh, holding uh, the babies and the toddlers all the way up to Esri's two now, and so I still love doing it, but capturing them up and holding them in my arms and holding them in front of the mirror with me so that my face and their face is in the mirror, and I say, who is that? And Ezri, or who's in the mirror? And Ezri will go, it's Ezri and daddy. She lights up, it's Ezri and daddy. And she'll wrap her hands around my head and squeeze it like she wants to pop it. Like a big pimple. And I love it. Has anybody ever done that with a kid? Isn't it so interesting that when I look in the mirror, I see all of those things Shame and judgment and guilt and push-ups and neglected and things that could have been and things I should have been and things I shouldn't have said. and All of the past is sort of rushing back on you and all the future and all of its fears are facing you. But when I hold Ezra in front of the mirror, she lights up and she says, I see daddy. Maybe she's right and I'm wrong. Jesus said that we should pay a lot of attention to children Because we're all so busy, we forgot how to have fun. We forgot how to 
embrace joy. We forgot how to live with time. And we forgot how to be friends with people who are just our same size. <laughs> Remember that? When you were a kid, if they were your height, they were smaller than dad or mom, they were a friend. You know, something happened over the years that changed my perception and probably your perception too so that it moved from that two-year-old smile to that 37-year-old guilt, shame, all that other stuff. This is a lovely little passage that I want to spend some time with from 1 Corinthians 13. It's actually one of the first sermons I preached here. Um, I preached on the first half of this passage and I want to look at the back half of the passage You might have heard it before. (laughs) If you want to follow along just as I am, I'm on page uh, 959. It's 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read the whole passage. It all hangs together. And I want to pay particularly attention to the end, but I want us to hear all of it. Yeah? So I'm going to read, beginning with verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13, page 959, if you want to follow along. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have the prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all of the faith so as to remove the mountains but I have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver my body up to be burned as a martyr, But have not love, I gained nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as prophecies, for prophecies they'll pass away, tongues they will cease, knowledge it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This uh, passage is probably one of the more famous passages in the Bible. It's so important, it plays the critical moment where Jim and Pam's relationship, their marriage is like on the rocks of the last season in the office, you know, and she's like, you know what I'm talking about? And she's, he's, you know, he's trying to apologize, he's hugging her, he's trying to apologize, and she's considering, am I going to forgive him? Am I going to open myself up to him again, or am I going to let this marriage die away? And what's beautiful is, in this cut of this incredibly popular TV show, they're showing flashbacks to the wedding where they're reading the passage we just read. All of America, well, not all of America, but however much of America watched The Office, listen to that passage passage because even Hollywood recognizes that the only beauty in the world is not cutting and running but hanging in when it hurts. 
And all the world could read that these words are not words of sentimentality and hallmark Hollywood drivel, but words of great depth and meaning that call for allegiance, that call for sacrifice, that tell us the truth, that love is the greatest gift and also our greatest risk. It is God's greatest risk to us and is our greatest risk back to God and to one another, which is why we so rarely open ourselves up and why we are so irritable and resentful and angry because it protects us from being open and honest and vulnerable. This passage that we just read said very scandalous things. It said that you could make America great again, but if you had not love, you gained nothing. It says that if you passed universal health care and gave everyone every pill they needed, but had not love, you gained nothing. That it didn't matter if you've got the biggest car or the biggest check or the biggest job or the biggest house or the biggest name or the biggest church. If you don't have love for God, you have nothing. And for you, you have nothing either. Because everything I just mentioned is passing away so fast, you'll wonder where it went. And the world is rushing by us and is trying to grab us and drag us along with it. And all of creation and God himself are crying out to you to take a breath. And to take a moment and to remember what really matters. I love this passage. This has stuck with me for about a year now. I've been thinking about this verse since last January when I had this idea first. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Because I think all of us, when we look in the mirror, we see the same thing that I see, all that could have been but wasn't. But what does Paul seem to indicate to us here? Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as right now I'm fully known. Mirrors in the ancient world were made of metal, right? They didn't perfect anything so that they could see a reflection. So if you had a mirror, which was a rarity in the ancient world, it was a piece of polished brass or a piece of silver, which means when you looked into a mirror, you never actually saw a full reflection of your face, which means that for most people, for most of the history of the whole of creation, they didn't know what their own face looked like. And that someone painted a portrait and was very accurate. They didn't pick Picasso or some insanity like that, right? Imagine never knowing what your face exactly looked like. The specific, specifics, right? I mean, mirrors might have been invented by makeup companies because that would be a great way to make a buck. I just thought of that. Anyway, what was I talking about? Mirrors. So the mirrors, when you, look at, when you look at yourself in the mirror, like you're not actually seeing anything. And he equates this to our knowledge. Our knowledge is the same way. The amount of information that you can hold in your brain is so limited. The dimness of our understanding of our own face, he says. In fact, many of us are struggling to even know ourselves. We're asking questions. How many of you ever asked your question, why in the world did I do that? Has anybody ever asked that question? You did it! 
I don't know, tell me. Like, right? But we, we do that. We do things that, what in the world am I? We don't even know ourselves half the time. You think you're going to figure everything out? You think you got all the answers? We don't. In fact, in fact, we have so little of it. Paul says we've got to fill that gap up. And he doesn't seem to indicate that our limits should somehow cause us shame. He doesn't seem to think that we should, because most of us are afraid of looking stupid or ignorant. And that's why we bluster so much. How many of y'all straight up lie to people? Get your hands up. You're sitting around, you're talking to somebody, you're meeting them, you're shaking hands, you're out here, someone, like, hey, did you see, see the game or did you see the movie? And you say, yeah, I totally saw that. I didn't see that. I don't know why I lie about it. I just, I just did. You know, like, how many of you have ever done that? Like, you see, it's a bald-faced lie. You're like, why did, I mean, it wouldn't matter, but it saved face, didn't it? That person was, you were part of that conversation. You were part of that moment. You were with that individual, and they thought you were with, you were known, and you were welcomed, and you were safe, and you were there, right? And so we do all of these things to try to belong, but Paul indicates here that the mirror is not the place of shame. Rather, it's the place where we are fully known, he says that when we look into the mirror, we, we begin to, to be known. And he says here, the, the particularly good news, that currently now you are known. Known by God. And every one of us has a deep and abiding desire. In fact, maybe one of the deepest desires of the human heart is to be known. Which is why I can call out your name, Cheryl. And I can start talking to Cheryl. And it doesn't matter if there's a hundred people around. We're going to have a moment together. I've done that to many of you awkwardly sometimes <laughs> and sometimes it goes well. but either way like your name is a moment where I know you and you know me and you we know each other and it doesn't matter who else is around there's a moment of real understanding and that attracts us it calls us we want to be known and Paul says that when we truly know ourselves when we look into that mirror what stares back at you because Paul says it in Christ it isn't shame and regret and wrinkles it is instead Faith, hope, and love. Like these are the things that are abiding. These are the things we're going to experience. These are the things that we are going to have. These are the things that Christ gives us. When we look into the mirror, we need to reform it so that when you look into the mirror, you see through Christ faith and hope and love because I have seen it in so very many of you. And I want you all to see it in yourselves. And I want to see God inflame it and encourage it and make it greater and bigger and more wonderful. Because we're asking this question, how can we make 2020 a better year? It certainly must begin with faith and hope and love. It certainly must include increasing amounts of faith and hope and love. It's interesting that the word faith doesn't appear much in, in this letter that Paul talks about here in this letter. Um, but I, I, I want you to remember that the first sin that we have is idolatry. The first sin is to take a human, to take ourselves and to put ourselves in God's place. And we, we do that. We put our desires, our needs, even our own lives above everything, which is why evil is so often really banal and, and terrible. But faith drives us toward greater acts of charity, Faith calls us to become 
better than we are. Faith calls us to become calmer, quieter, more peaceful, to move more slowly at the pace of God as God grows and moves us, just as our children take so many years and so much time to help to mold, to process, to grow, to think, to correct, to love, to laugh, all of those things. God is moving at the same slow pace with us. No matter how old you look, when you look in the mirror, God's pace hasn't changed. He's still moving with us. And Paul reminds us that faith tells us we don't have to have all of the answers, that our experience is indeed an experience. He says earlier in this letter, as he's talking and reflecting upon faith and how they might encounter faith, he says, when I first came to you, when I was with you, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. My speech My message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and in power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here his point is that he is not the most polished speaker. He hasn't had the most, you know, uh, he, he wasn't the most boisterous. He didn't know all the, he wasn't the smartest guy in the room. He didn't have the most polished speech. He didn't have everything figured out. In fact, he came in such a way that showed humility and weakness. And he really did believe that, that God would show up and do something in their midst. I've read a few books in my years, and in my time reading books, I have learned one very important truth. I know very little How many of you have ever said, I, I, I remember this one time I was sitting in a, I was in a debate and I was listening to a young earth creationist, if you know what that is, and I was listening to somebody who was advocating for kind of a theistic evolution argument, and I was listening to them both, and I listened to one guy, and I was like, wow, that is a really great argument, I totally believe you. And I listened to the next guy, he made another argument, I was like, wow, that's a really great argument, I totally believe you. And I walked away very convinced that they're both right. How many of you ever had that? Like you, you listen to one side of an argument, you're like, wow, that makes sense. And you listen to another side of an argument, you're like, wow, that makes sense. And you're like, wow, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Because my knowledge is so limited. And your knowledge, our knowledge is so limited. So what fills up that gap? Faith and hope and love. He says, don't trust just in your cognitive abilities. That our faith is also experiential. This is one of the things that our churches are the worst at. We're very good at the logic, at the reason, at the scripture, at the studies, at all of this. But the experiential side is something we wrestle with as you all struggle to get your arms up at best when we're singing songs of praise to Jesus, right? God forbid somebody claps. I mean, we have a hard time. Frozen Chosen is what they call the Presbyterians. But I grew up in the Restoration Movement, and we give them a run for their money. Come on. Our faith is experiential. Paul says, this isn't built on great arguments. I didn't stand up here and give you the best argument you've ever heard. Because Paul knows that as soon as he steps away and walks away, somebody else is going to take the podium and give them the best argument they've ever heard and draw them away from Jesus. And he says, I gave you plenty of arguments, yes, but God showed up and it was your experience of God moving in you that awoke you to his love and called you to him. It wasn't my working. It wasn't my argument it was God don't forget that don't forget that in fact he goes so much further in chapter 14 which I won't get into but he says cultivate it 
Cultivate your experience of God's grace. Cultivate your experience of God's power. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that we are illogical or that our faith is built on nothing or just random beliefs. Paul says, in fact, very much yet among the mature, we're doing what? We're imparting wisdom. Paul says, I'm here with a message. I'm here with, a, with reasoned, logical arguments. I have things to say too, but it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. That's an important thing to remember for 2020. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages. I, I just noticed this this morning too. Did you notice this? For whose glory? Go ahead and say it. That's all right. It's in the Bible. And on the screen. In fact, I, you doubled up on it. Whose glory? Whose glory? We are imparting wisdom, but it's a peculiar kind of wisdom. And I've spent too much time with my children. Can I get a witness over the Christmas? And so immediately my mind went here. But, you know, of course, the kid gets a new toy. Esri opens. Of course, it's always Esri. Esri opens it up. And uh, it needs batteries. So I go to get it from her to put the batteries in it. And she's like, what? Gus? Yeah. Yes. What? No. Like, right? No. It's because mine, mine, mine. Exactly. And I'm like, no, I'm... I, Listen, you psycho, I don't want your stupid toy, right? I just want to put batteries in the thing. So I'm trying to get it away from her. And she's like, ah, right? Because it is counterintuitive to her. The way the world works in her little two-year-old mind is if I don't bite every other toddler in this room, that snack's not mine, right? Like her mind is very much law of the jungle. And for her, it is counterintuitive to give it to me so that I can fix it and give it back. But that's the true wisdom of the moment, isn't it? But she is so caught up, she can't see it. And what's Paul saying here? He's saying, we're imparting a wisdom that people are going to look at and say, dude, that's bananas. And Paul says, that's okay. Because there are people who are in positions that are so great and so wonderful and life is so great that they can't even think that they need something else. But if you hear the call of God, you should answer it. And the wisdom that is being spoken is one that is so difficult. In fact, Paul says, if they understood it, if they understood the great love of God and what God was doing, they never, he says, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory, but they couldn't see and they couldn't understand because they kept on seeing things through strength and power and defeat. They kept on seeing things through worldly ways of, of understanding and they could not undersee, understand and and manifest the glory of the cross. So the wisdom of the world, the, the way that we live is that we do understand love. We understand love of family. We understand love of friends. We understand love of place. We understand love of country. We, love, we understand love of all sorts of things. But very few of us understand how to love our oppressors. And very few of us understand how to love the person holding the weapon at our neck. But this is what Jesus calls us to. 
Isn't Jesus from the cross the one who said, Father, forgive them? For they know not what they do. That Jesus from the very cross is offering forgiveness to the one who is killing him. And hoping that the one who is killing him will believe in him and receive everlasting life. So that Jesus can spend eternity with his murderers. This is what the text means when it says greater love has no one than this than they lay down their life for a friend. That is what we're talking about. And that is what Jesus has done for every single one of us. And that is what he wants to pour into us. And that is what he wants us to see when we look in the mirror. He wants us to see that faith staring back at us. And so faith calls us, let me give you two things, because that's what preachers do. And they rhyme again. Do I get, or, no, no, second week in a row, no applause. First week, yes, second week, no, I understand. Faith means loyalty. We are called to fealty. We are called to be loyal to our king. And we have a hard time thinking like that sometimes because of the great loves that we feel, the great pulls that we feel, to all the things that I've already mentioned. But what we call, are called to in Jesus Christ is this, that we have been seized by the power of a great affection. And that affection makes all other affections pale in comparison. In fact, we suddenly begin to learn that all of the other affections that we had are in fact only reflections when they are good of God's own glory. That God himself is the great light and that anything else that would capture that light comes from God. That all good gifts come from the Father of lights, as the scriptures say. And so we are called to look into the mirror and to see truth and fealty and faithfulness. Loyalty is what faith is calling us to, but faith is also calling us to liberty. And that brings us kind of to think about the mirror for a moment again as we come to a conclusion compare the feelings you're in a room with your one or two close friends how do you feel I don't mean just in your heart like emotions but I mean how's your body feel how do you sit how's the chair how do you sit in the chair how do you sit in the couch how do you interact with that person how's your how's your whole being feel in that moment feel it for a second feel it for a second all right, now, take yourself out of that room and you're going into another room and in this room, you're about to enter and do an interview for a job. How do you feel in your body, in your being, your emotions, your, your physical forms, your hands? How do you feel? Right, obviously, those are extreme differences, but you feel quite different, don't you? You feel quite different. In one place, we're comfortable, we're relaxed, we're able to be ourselves. In one place, we're tense, we're, we're, we're uptight, we're, we're wondering, we're worrying, we're f- fearful, we're thinking, what are they thinking of me? What are they thinking of me? What are they thinking of me? And it just occurs to me that maybe, how do we feel when we walk into this community, into this church? Is it this? Or is it this? That's a big difference, isn't it? And all of that depends on on what we're in, embracing and, w- and what we're doing. It all depends on, on the kind of way that we have lived our lives. What, the more we trust in God, the more we embrace faith, the more we can look into that mirror and we can lean into this because th- the fact of the matter is you are a child of God. 
You are held in God's hands. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to have it all worked out. You need to have faith. You need to have faith. You need to have trust. And that trust can do something beautiful. It can move you from a person who is tense and afraid and worried and harried and drawn and irritable to a person who is relaxed and at peace with God and with those around you. Faith can do that for you in 2020. If you will cultivate it, if you will breathe into it, if you will inflame it, if you will add to it, if you'll talk about your faith with other believers and other non-believers even, read about your faith, listen to, to music, sing about your faith, sing because you've been saved, sing because you're free, sing because judgment no longer holds to you, sing because it doesn't actually matter if somebody looks down upon you or not because you are held by God. It doesn't matter if you don't have all of the answers. It doesn't matter because faith says you're held, you're trusted, God is with you. Sing because when Paul talks about faith, he can't help but get to what it's all about. Like, isn't that the best thing? I love how he does it. It's not there at all. It's in chapter 2. There we go. Well, that was going to be a much better conclusion, but I lost my place. So I'll read it from here. I love how Paul gets to it, right? After it's all said and done, after all the faith talk has been done, and after all this stuff is there, he says, But it is written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no heart of man has imagined, is what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And so, faith calls your name today. God calls your name today. For he knows you. And he invites you to let him know you, but he also invites you to let us know you too. That together, as we are on this journey, we're able to be friends who can share this journey. We can only do it if we have faith in God and we can only do it if we have faith in one another. So will you make 2020 with me a year of faith? And if you need to embrace faith, I invite you to come and see me down front or if that's awkward and weird, our elders hang out over here by this room. They would love to meet with you and walk with you and talk with you if you just need prayer. Whatever it is you need, don't let today go by without inflaming your faith. Let's stand as we sing a song of faith.